In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the very first verse of our Bible, we are shown the greatness and the power of the Almighty God. The Genesis record of the creation is substantiated in many parts of the Bible, including the books of Job, Psalms, and Isaiah. With the increase in knowledge, the biblical record of creation has been cast aside by the majority of people in favor of evolution, which requires little faith and is more appealing to the fleshly mind. Unfortunately, the body of Christ has suffered in this matter also, for there are some who have denied the first few chapters of Genesis, classifying them as parables and allegories. The Apostle Paul correctly foretold that in the latter times some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. In our talk this evening, we will attempt to show some of the errors and the evils of this theory. There are many phases to this false science which opposes God's revelation of man's origin, his present state, and his future destiny. Our children are being insidiously poisoned by this corrupting philosophy in their biology classes in school. Unless we parents have a good, a good answer to counteract it, their doubts and their fears will generate into unbelief. We are convinced that this doctrine of organic evolution is a fraud and that there isn't a sh shred of scientific evidence to support it. Evolution may be defined as the hypothesis that millions of years ago, lifeless matter acted upon by natural forces gave origin to one or more minute living organisms which have since evolved into all living and extinct plants and animals, including man. In its wider aspects, the theory of evolution embraces the origin and development of the entire universe. According to this concept, when the crust of the earth became solid, that is about four or five billion years ago, only simple molecules were formed, such as hydrogen, ammonia, methane, and water vapor. From these, larger molecules developed, the first living particles with the properties of self-duplication and mutation. From these, in turn, the multicellular forms arose. And the entire evolution of life, from inanimate matter to man, is thus explained on a materialistic basis of physics and chemistry. It has been suggested that in the beginning, the universe may have consisted only of hydrogen, from which everything has since developed. The concept of evolution completely eliminates God. Nevertheless, this theory has captured the imagination of millions of people and is taught as a fact in most of our colleges and universities. Evolution is generally accepted as a self-starting, self-propagating process which has led to the development of the entire universe as we find it today. All living and extinct forms are looked upon 
as an endless chain of life. A Professor Simpson of Harvard University has pointed out that the theory obviously does not yet answer all questions or plumb all mysteries, even when all details are taken into consideration. It casts no light on the ultimate mystery, the origin of the universe and the source of the laws or physical properties of matter, energy, space, and time. And it may be added also that the theory of evolution affords no explanation whatever of the plan or purpose of creation or of the destiny of man. A modified form of this hypothesis is known as the theistic evolution. According to this view, God created all things by or through a process of evolution. But such teaching is incompatible with the history of the fall of man and his need of redemption. The Bible very clearly states that man was created in the image of God and because of sin fell from his high estate. This is not evolution. Nor can the account given in the Holy Scriptures of the creation of Eve be reconciled with any theory of the evolution of sex, for from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. How could this simple statement be interpreted as the gradual reconstruction of an ape or of some other creature into that of a man? How could the theory of evolution be equated with the Genesis narrative unless we regard the biblical account of creation as poetic nonsense? The story of creation in Genesis is history, not poetry. It is a statement of fact and not an allegory. The theory of evolution is incompatible with the teaching of the New Testament. The concept of original sin is the foundation stone of the Christian doctrine of the atonement and is based upon the historical account of the sin of Adam. Man sinned and fell. He did not ascend from a lower form. The validity and authority of the New Testament depend upon the Old Testament. They cannot be separated. If we believe John's Gospel, we must believe Genesis also. For Jesus said, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? There are many gaps in the evolution scale. One authority has pointed out that the first gap occurs between the one-celled animal and those with several hundred cells. No animal is known with two cells, or four, six, eight, sixteen, and so forth, and there is no evidence that any such creatures have ever existed. Yet such forms must have existed at some time or other if evolution be true. The simplest and most reasonable interpretation of comparative anatomy is that each kind of planet, plant, excuse me, and animal was brought into existence by God Almighty through a series of creative acts and in, in accordance with the inscrutable plans of the great designer. One great difficulty is that no intermediate 
or transitional forms between the highly peculiar species such as whales, seals, sea cows, turtles, kangaroos, bats, dragonflies, spiders, and so forth, and their supposed ancestors have ever been discovered. The earliest fossils of these exhibit all the features that distinguish the group to which they belong. A professor at Harvard University has said, links are missing just where we most fervently desire them, and it is all too probable that many links will continue to be missing. It may be argued that, it, that the absence of intermediate forms in the fossil record is due to their being few in number and undergoing rapid change, but such an explanation is inadequate. inadequate. According to the theory of evolution, all living forms are transitional in an endless chain of life. Why then are, are there not samples of all the millions of transitional forms in the, in the fossil record, instead of those, just those which obviously belong to a definite species? The total lack of intermediate forms is therefore not due to the imperfection of the geological record, as Darwin has suggested, but rather demonstrates that such forms never did exist. Some animals have complicated organs, which would have been quite useless until fully developed, as, for example, the web-spinning organs of the spider. How would, it have, how would it have been possible for these spinnerets to have evolved gradually? They would have been entirely useless until fully completed, and the intermediate stages would only have been a nuisance if not actually harmful to the organism during the process of development. Consider also the woodpecker. During the er his early stages of development, millions must have died due to brain concussion and broken necks. From a purely biological point of view, the whole controversy regarding evolution resolves itself into the problem of the species concept. Are species fixed entities, or are they only transitional forms in an endless chain of life? This is a crucial issue. Darwin re regarded the term species as a mere, a mere useless abstraction, and as one arbitrarily given for the sake of convenience. In the scriptures, however, we read in the first chapter of Genesis that God created various kinds of plants and animals. The word translated kind is the Hebrew word min, M-I-N, meaning akin to. Whatever the full significance of the word in Hebrew may be, it would seem reasonable to assume that its basic meaning is that of the simplest classified level which fulfills the scriptural condition of reproducing after his kind, that is to say, the species. The distinctive feature of each kind or basic type is its ability to reproduce others which are akin to the parents but not identical with them. The classified unit thus represents a definite entity and not an evolving type. Man is unique in his vertical or upright position. 
All of the animals move on the horizontal, horizontal plane. It is true, of course, that the monkey family, bears, chipmunks, and so forth, sometimes stand upright or walk in the upright position, but their normal mode of locomo locomotion is on all fours. Man alone can read or write, and he alone in the animal kingdom is aware of history with all its lessons. Man alone is able to kindle fires and grow and prepare his own food. Man alone wears clothes, and man alone has a sense of humor that gives rise to laughter. Man alone is found everywhere on the earth in response to the divine command given in Genesis 1.28. Animals, on the other hand, have limited habitats, and except in the company of man, cannot adjust to every land and climate. No other species is, akin to, is alien to the rest of nature. No other species is bent on destroying itself. No other species deliberately destroys its own habitat. No other species seeks something which it is not by nature capable of being. Man is unique in his origin and destiny. His supreme distinction, however, lies in the priceless gift of speech, by means of which he is able to communicate abstract ideas to his fellow man. Speech enables man to have fellowship with God. Animals and birds have vocal organs, but they cannot speak. The cries of animals and birds are emotional and not conceptual. They are only exclamations. What sets, part, what sets man apart from animals more than any other single quality is the ability to use language. Man alone experiences a sense of guilt when he does wrong. Man alone is conscious of the judgment to come, and man alone enjoys the hope of immortality beyond the grave. Animals may experience the pleasure of approval or pain of disapproval, but they cannot exercise abstract moral judgment. There is an unbridgeable gulf between man's moral nature and the intelligence of animals. <laughs> As one man has stated, no animal has ever shown any desire to worship, whereas the most primitive man, even in the most debased society, always retained this fundamental urge and instinct. Here again we have the positive and negative aspects of the same truth. It is the gift of speech which enables man to worship, that is, to ascribe worth to his creator in praise and thanksgiving. This factor alone places man anterior and superior to the brute creation. Man was created in the image of God and not in the image of an ape, a monkey, or any such creature. It is on the basis of this concept that our belief in the sanctity of human life depends. The value and dignity of the individual for whom Christ died rests upon our appreciation of this fact. Apart from this concept, man is only a beast and life is very cheap. In 2 Thessalonians 2.11, we read that in the last days God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. What is the lie? 
It is the first lie, the lie of the serpent, who is the father of lies. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know in the day ye eat thereof that your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In these words, the adversary denied the truth of God's word and promised Eve that if she and Adam were to eat of the forbidden fruit, they would become as gods or supermen. And is not this the very essence of evolution, the denial of God's word and the promise of the superman? In the doctrine of evolution, Satan has revived the first lie with which he deceived mankind in the beginning. The order and beauty of nature and the complexity and perfection of organization are evidences of design, both to the sage and to the wayfaring man alike. God thundereth mar marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. For he saith to the snow, Be thou on the earth. Likewise to the small rain, and the great reign of his strength. He sealeth up the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. This is from the 37th chapter of Job. If we deny purpose and design in nature, we deny God himself. The conflict between the concept of evolution and the word of God is one of life and death. To suggest that there is an ultimate purpose in nature and in the universe about it is quite as reasonable as the hopeless position of those who postulate an accident. How can we ascribe purpose to an atom? A professor has stated that evolution in general has no program, and the evolution of man is no exception. But the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, it taketh the wise in their own craftiness. The mechanistic view of the universe, which is devoid of value or purpose, is completely untenable. God is working out his purpose in the universe, and it is still true that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Of course there is a plan and purpose in life in the universe, Everywhere there is evidence of design. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. In a world ruled by fear and hatred, it is well that our hope for eternity should be based not on the sterile and hopeless theory of evolution, but upon the revelation of God to man, given us in the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The consciousness of sin comes to us at all times and cannot be lightly brushed aside or dispelled. God's plan of redemption through the sacrifice of his son on Calvary gives us the key to man's redemption and to the order and purpose of the universe. In these last days of Gentile times, when the world about us is steeped in iniquity, the servant of God must gird up his loins 
and watch for those wolves in sheep's clothing who try to destroy the flock. The words of Paul come into mind when he says, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee.